Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum, from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. Our special guest this week is Pete Weiner, a contributor to The New York Times and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Biden era. Uh, Yesterday was the inauguration. We are recording this on Thursday. So let's start with you, Damon. You had some thoughts about the speech, uh, specifically about the call for unity. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was an effective speech. Uh, Not not really uh, anything that memorable as far as rhetoric goes, but it was heartfelt and passionate and uh, had a lot of uh, nice aspirational language in it. I, you know, and I'm not, I wouldn't put myself in the camp of a lot of people on the kind of more extreme partisan right and left who denounce the call to unity because they just want to keep attacking the other side. And how dare you uh, say that uh, we should stop the battle now when it's just getting interesting. Uh, my view is more just that um, I hope that this really is just kind of aspirational language for the address and that Biden does not seriously intend on trying to govern uh, for the sake of achieving unity. He needs unity to get certain things done through Congress, absolutely. But there are lots of other things that he's going to want to do that he's going to have to do uh, right over the objections of the Republican Party. And the number of things that is, we don't quite know yet, but, uh, you know, already uh, Biden announcing that we're going to be rejoining the the, uh, the Paris Climate Accord immediately resulted in Ted Cruz tweeting out, this shows that Biden cares more about the fancy people in Paris than in Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, that's the kind of, of stuff that he's going to be facing uh, all the time. And frankly, look, he's already, he already faced it on the evening of his own inauguration. So uh, again, if it was just language, if it was a kind of aspirational statement that we should strive to be one country, uh, no longer uh, engaged in what he called an uncivil war, then yes, by all means, bravo. But um, as soon as governing begins, that becomes uh, something that, that needs to really be set aside in favor of deal making and then plowing ahead if the deals cannot be made. So um, the, and I do my, my more general sense of these things, my take on the role of political rhetoric in policymaking and governing is that the rhetoric should always be keyed toward uh, the kind of the realistic assessment of the political situation so as, so as not to raise uh, unrealistic hopes that then get dashed, uh, which leads to uh, kind of a new round of different problems. I think Obama ran into some difficulties by ratcheting up the rhetoric in his initial campaign so very high with talk of 
you know, halting the rising seas and, and sweeping massive change, always a little underspecified and yet still puffed up quite high. Um, and, you know, eight years later, we have a left wing insurrection in the Democratic Party from a rest of left that uh, feels like it was let down. So in general, I hope uh, Biden will uh, stop talking this way now and get to the business of running the country, which will be a little messier than calls for unity. Well, um, um, with all due respect, I, I actually don't think that his call for unity uh, was really expecting that everybody will march in unison. Um, I think it was more an expression of hoping that we can see ourselves as one nation, as you were saying, rather than this riven, uh, uncivil war, as he put it, which I thought was a very nice phrase. I mean, I think what he meant was was comedy. Um, and as an old speechwriter myself from many years ago, I think that the speechwriters probably didn't use comedy, which of course means courtesy and mutual respect, um, because it could be heard as comedy. Um, and so, uh, so they use unity. I don't know. Uh, I think maybe a little in, in context, it struck me that what he was asking for was an end to the divisiveness of the era that we've just lived through. Uh, what, what about you, Bill? What did you think? I have a very different take uh, for two reasons. First of all, I think there may be a disagreement between Damon and now President Biden on what it means to think realistically, right? That's an, that's an empirical claim about future possibilities. Uh, and you may turn out to be right, Damon, uh, but clearly Joe Biden believes that his relationships that he's built up, plus the political skills that he's developed uh, in many decades of national public life, will allow thing, him to make progress in areas where his previous boss, President Obama, ran into stone walls because Obama was not a negotiator and didn't particularly enjoy dealing with Congress, even members of his own party, as far as I can tell. So that's point number one. Point number two, uh, given the very narrow divisions, the close divisions in both the House and the Senate, the Senate literally could not be closer. Uh, there are limits, very strict limits on what Biden could do based on support from only his own political party. Other than forcing a big package through uh, using reconciliation, everything else will have to be negotiated in these circumstances. He does not enjoy the luxury of a huge majority in the House and 60 senators that Barack Obama had during the, the most fruitful portion of his legislative presidency, which lasted less than two years. So I don't, frankly, I don't see what the alternative is. And you can call it unity. You can call it compromise. You can, you know, you can call building legislation from the center out. But I'm telling you, there are now bipartisan blocks in both the House and the Senate that are determined to play pivotal roles in determining the parameters of legislation. And it's not going to be Mitch McConnell's call. It's not going to be Chuck Schumer's call. And in many respects, it's not going to be Joe Biden's call either. So I just, I think Biden is being realistic, frankly. 
Um, Pete, uh, for good or ill, um, ringing calls for compromise just don't make for great inaugural addresses. Oh, what did you? What do you think about this? This question of uh, of compromise, unity, etc. And what did you? What did you make of the speech in general? You've had a hand in many a presidential speech yourself. Yeah, I was um, I, I was more favorably disposed to it than, than Damon um, was. Honestly, I thought it was um, elegant um, in places, moving. I thought it was close to pitch perfect. I think that he really spoke into this moment and said what needed to be said, and I think he delivered it pretty well for Joe Biden, who's not a great orator, particularly when he's um, when he's using a teleprompter. Uh, so I felt like it was the speech that the country needed. And I felt like um, it was the day that the that the country needed. I think I would disaggregate some of this between compromise and unity. Um, and, and let me begin by saying that we are now a nation that is almost literally, in some cases, at each other's throats. The, the division, the hatred, the antipathy is as great as, as we've seen probably since the Civil War. Or the uh, or the late 1960s, we're not in a good place. Those divisions um, were caused not really so much by how uh, Donald Trump governed. He didn't his governing agenda didn't divide us so much as his words divided us. His symbolism, um, how he acted, how he conducted himself, um, and uh, we've seen that that matters. Uh, words matter maybe more than people realize. There is an amorphous realm to democracy. Um, which is how does a country, is a continental country like ours in particular, um, with all of its diversity, actually find unity? And that's that's it's not easy to achieve. Um, and I think what what Biden um, needs to do is conduct himself in the realm beyond legislation with certain grace notes um, to show a certain generosity of spirit, to give a kind of benefit of the doubt to other people, to turn, as he said, the temperature down rather than than up to show a, a certain degree of, of humility. I think it's true to him um, and a degree of empathy, which I think is one of the great gifts that he brings to this to this office. And it's an empathy born of tremendous grief and tremendous suffering and a kind of faith that was refined through all of those things. That stuff matters. Um, and uh, and so does governing. Uh, and obviously the issues that he faces, the pandemic, uh, the economic crisis, all all the rest, presidents are judged by those things, but they're judged on more than that. And I would say that Biden is approaching things the right way, and and I was encouraged by what he said. Linda, one person um, who seems to agree that Biden is the man for the moment um, is um, someone perhaps you wouldn't expect, but it's uh, George W. Bush who apparently took Jim Clyburn aside on the inaugural platform and said to him, you're a savior uh, because of Clyburn's role in getting Biden the nomination. He said nobody else could have beaten Trump. Um, and uh, and I, I just want, would love your reflections on Biden the man, because there is a lot to be said for the fact that whatever his flaws may have been in the past, he may be the very best that we could hope for at this moment. Uh, it it may be impossible um, to to you know heal these breaches. It may be impossible even to to calm the waters. Although I think it's eminently possible, but we'll see. But um, but if anybody is is well equipped to do it, 
it would be Joe Biden, the man who um, has has is an institutionalist, has been around for a very long time, is no radical, has a history of cooperation with the other side, believes in compromise, believes in democracy, um, doesn't doesn't get people's back. You know, nobody responds to Joe Biden with bristling, right? However much they might disagree with him. What do you absolutely, think absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And, and I have to say, I'm with. Uh, Pete on this. I thought that speech was near pitch perfect. Uh, I spent my day glued to the television set yesterday. Um, I watched, you know, from the uh, inauguration all through uh, the evening's festivities. And my sense uh, is that Joe Biden, the man, is exactly the person that we need today. You know, an old friend of mine once said that your personality, who you are, is pretty much determined by the time you're 18 years old. You don't really fundamentally change after that. You may change ideas, you may change style, but who you are becomes fixed at a fairly early point in your life. And my sense of Joe Biden is that he is a healer and he is somebody who has a very centrist personality. And it is so refreshing after the last really five years of, of Donald Trump uh, to see someone who is humble, um, in which you know the inauguration and the day was not all about Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, he was there uh, to uh, to be our president, to be the leader, moving us forward, uh, and to unite us. What was interesting to me during the day was that, you know, I'm a bit of a masochist. And so I flipped channels and I not only watched, you know, the regular cable channels, CNN, MSNBC, some of the networks. Uh, I also switched over to Fox News and I even switched over to OAN, uh, which of course is uh, now the the real Trumpist uh, channel. Fox is, uh, is too moderate for the hardcore uh, Trumpists. What was surprising to me listening to the OAN and, and uh, Fox, certainly in the evening, was to see the way they took Joe Biden's words. And it was as if they were, you know, part of the bureau within uh, Orwell's 1984 that redrafted the language. Uh, It was all newspeak. When he talked about unity, they heard division. Mm -hmm. And that um, is very disheartening to me. But I think one of the things that's going to be good about focusing on this unity, um, contrary to, to Damon's fear that it, you know, that it may not be achievable and it may, you know, focus too much on compromise and things won't get done, is that at least for the American people to hear this uh, and to hear it consistently and to see it acted out uh, in the way in which uh, Biden governs is going to be very important uh, to trying to bring this country together. Because, you know, the people who who stormed the Capitol on January 6th do not represent all of Trump's voters or even, you know, I think it hopefully is a rather small portion of, of Trump's voters. Many of Trump's voters uh, voted because they believed in Trump and they believed his words, and unfortunately, his words were a lie. But I believe that over the course of the next six months in particular, seeing Joe Biden uh, in in that office is going to have 
uh, some change. And one of the most refreshing things I saw all day was when Biden was swearing in his 1,000 new appointees. First of all, the fact that he was competent enough to have 1,000 people ready to go and put into place, which uh, the the Trump administration could never quite master, uh, you know, how to actually (laughs) govern. Uh, But the second thing was when he said, if I ever hear any of you berate uh, someone else, and, and particularly a subordinate, I'll fire you on the spot. I thought that was remarkable and um, and very heartening. And again, says something about his basic personality. He is first and foremost a decent man. Pete, um, the 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 worry is that well, twofold. One is that many people who supported Trump and believe falsely that the election was stolen will never hear that. They will never see that Joe Biden. It will all be filtered through these sinister, twisted uh, filters um, that the uh, OANs and and Fox Newses and and Limbaugh's and so forth will apply to everything. Um, And the second, possibly even more worrying thought is that some of these people, maybe lots of them, don't like decency. They like the fight. What do you? What are your views? Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, very quickly, I do want to say one thing about the speech, and then come yeah. back to your question. Uh, yeah, sure. Which is, um, uh, there was an element of that speech which I thought was extremely important and really dovetail with 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 your question. It wasn't just that Biden talked about unity; he also talked about talked about truth. Yeah, I would say, at least in my estimation, maybe the central challenge facing this country uh, in this decade is our epistemic crisis, this notion that we don't have a common set of facts and that some large portion of, of the public um, lives in an alternate reality in a world of make-believe. And that just makes governing, self-governing very, very hard. It makes persuasion very, very hard. Um, and the fact that Biden spoke to that and spoke quite directly to it was important. Now, what a president can do in that enterprise is a complicated question. And much of it has to be done in, in areas beyond beyond a president, for sure. But a president matters, and we know that because we saw what Donald Trump, uh, not just his lies, but his full-scale, all-out, daily annihilation of truth, you know, has has um, has done. In terms of your question, it's a really good one. Um, I would say that if, if I were in the White House, if I were Joe Biden, the way I would approach this is um, you have to do what you can do, and you can control what you can control. Uh, you can't control what everybody else can control, uh, what, what everybody else does. And I think that the way to view this, I would say probably empirically, is what number of people can Joe Biden and Democrats and responsible Republicans, quite honestly, pry apart and pry away um, from the radioactive uh, core? Joe Biden shouldn't think about how can I win over uh, Rush Limbaugh or Proud Boys uh, or uh, white supremacists, he'll never get them. But I think the January 6th, I, I hope it was an inflection point. I suspect it was uh, for, for a lot of people, certainly the people who knew better, who were complicit in the Trump enterprise, and they saw the catastrophe that, that it brought. Sometimes viruses create their own antibodies. Sometimes when you live in a world of hatred uh, and division that gives way to violence and a world of unbelief, 
people begin to realize why those things matter after all, certain virtues that, that you might have ignored, you begin to cherish again. And that may be happening. Whether it does or not, you know, remains to be seen. But, but Biden, he could be a theoretical pessimist, but he should be an operational optimist. He should work and his administration should work to try and make that happen and, and see what happens. Thank you. Um, okay, really quickly before we move on to our next topic, I just want to get a quick response from all of you about um, Amanda Gorman. I mean, I'll, I'll just put my views out there. I thought she was wonderful. This young poet, um, she was she was articulate. She was beautiful. I loved the way she moved her hands as she recited her poem. And uh, it was just I thought it was great. I, I saw there were some snarky comments because that's the world we live in. But um, did did everyone like her performance, or did you did you do you agree with me? Or if not, that's fine too. We can move right along. <laughs> uh, well, I loved her performance. Um, I was uh, unfortunately I decided to read the poem on the page afterwards, okay. and it was not nearly as impressive in reading it. Um, okay. Um, but but it was um, you know it was meant to be performed I think and mm-hmm. uh, it was almost like an elegant rap mm-hmm. more than it was uh, a traditional poem mm-hmm. and I thought for young people it hit exactly the right chord and um, and I found I, like you I thought she was beautiful and I thought everything about her you know was uh, impressive uh, but as a poet. She's only 22. She's got some work to do. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so looking ahead, uh, we now uh, are looking at uh, impeachment 2.0. Um, uh, Nancy Pelosi has not yet sent the article of impeachment to the Senate, uh, but uh, she said, today that she's going to do that soon and did not specify the rules are that when it is transmitted, the Senate has to take it up immediately, though they don't have to give up other business. And Bill Galston, you can correct me if that's not correct. I think that's right, though, that they can do more than one thing at a time, uh, including here an impeachment trial. But um, um, what what is your view, Bill, about the uh, likelihood of conviction? I think that the odds of conviction rest almost entirely on one man, and his name is Mitch McConnell. If McConnell makes the strategic decision that the long-term well-being, well, maybe of the country, but certainly of the Republican Party, depends on purging the party of Trump the man, and some of the more extreme followers that Trump, the president, generated, uh, and really sets his mind to persuading undecided senators that this is this is the best course for the country and the party, and it needn't cost them their seats. If he makes that decision, I think there's a fighting chance of getting to 67. Uh, if he doesn't, there isn't. He has already given permission to Republican senators uh, to vote for conviction. Uh, But permission at this point has to give way to outright persuasion. 
if there's any serious chance of getting two-thirds of the Senate. Now, an interesting wrinkle is that the actual language refers to two-thirds of the senators present. Present. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so he could he could simplify uh, the question considerably by asking lots of Republican senators just to stay away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, whether they would, whether they would be accused of treason and primary if they did is a separate question. But, uh, you know, I'd, I'd I do want to correct myself to some extent. If everybody's there at 67, but if, but if lots of people aren't there, then the number of Republican senators who actually have to take a deep breath and vote for conviction goes way down. Damon, there are many unanswered questions. Uh, we've never impeached a president twice, and that that's not in doubt that it's legal to do that, but it is in doubt as to whether you can um, impeach a president post his term. Um, so that would remain to be uh, sorted out in the courts, I guess. But the other question is whether these Republicans will evaluate their situation. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be naive and say they're going to ask what's good for the country. I think we've seen too much to imagine that. But they may ask themselves what is good for the Republican Party and conclude that at the moment, they have the power to prevent him from forming a third party, from threatening to run again for the Republican nomination, and darkening their doorsteps, you know, forever. And you do sort of wonder whether it's going to cross their minds that this is their one and only shot to um, make sure that they're Families don't have to face death threats going into the indefinite future for not following the orange God King. Well, I'm not sure how I see uh, taking him on and taking him down in this way as lessening the likelihood that they face death threats in the future. I think it's probably far. Well, because if he stays, if he stays a, a force in Republican politics, you know, for the rest of his life, then they they will continually be forced to grapple with his followers who will demand utter loyalty. Yeah, I guess. But I, I, I suppose, I mean, we really don't know a lot of things right now. I and mean, Trump was so quiet the last 10 days. There was something weirdly eerie about it, but also wonderful. Like he, he simply got shut up by the fact that he was deplatformed from Twitter and Facebook and he didn't opt to make many public statements really toward the end. So we got a taste of what the world could be like without Trump in it, before he actually fully and officially vacated. Um, So part of me wonders, like, will he just sort of slink away and disappear? But, you know, realistically speaking, that is probably not what's going to happen. He'll come roaring back at a certain point. And the question is, even if he were convicted and uh, they they passed uh, something saying that he could not serve as president again, uh, what would his role be? Would he 
abruptly disappear? Would his influence over his followers wane and disappear because the path to the presidency is now closed to him? Or could he be a kind of Rush Limbaugh times 10 uh, if he chose the right platform to do it? Now, Rush Limbaugh's never held elective office, and yet he's had an enormous influence on the shape of Republican politics. So... I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily uh, feel less threatened if I were in in the Senate facing this vote. If I'm really worried about death threats, and frankly, if you've seen that video from uh, a few days, I think it was the Friday right after the insurrection, uh, when uh, Lindsey Graham was walking through an airport, uh, mm-hmm. I think it was the Washington airport, and there a group of about a dozen people screaming at him, and especially this one woman just saying, "You piece of." garbage just shrieking at the top of her lungs like a mad person at him as he walks through doesn't you know he's a professional so he he his face doesn't break he stays cool and calm he has some security with him but uh but these these sound like maniacs now if if that's you know trump being forbidden from running for president again doesn't mean that he can't whip those kinds of people into a froth uh, till the end of time, if he remain, you know, maintains that ability to touch something inside of them uh, and express their anger and channel it, so yeah, I think it's a very tough call. I think I think there are clearly some senators like uh, uh, Senator Sass and Romney who who seem eager to do this. Uh, I agree that if McConnell not only gives a green light but actually. St- you know, tries to quietly whip some people uh, to vote to get rid of him, that this will matter. It will matter a lot because it will be our institutions and especially the institution of the Republican Party finally taking a stand and exercising some power to protect itself and the country from this menace. But it's quite late in the day. And what the actual effect on the party ends up being and on our politics with Trump formally excluded, I really wouldn't want to predict. I think this is all kind of new territory for all of us. Linda. Well, um, I, uh, I agree. We have no way of knowing uh, whether or not we're going to be able to get to the point of, of, uh, making sure that Donald Trump never uh, darkened the door of any public institution, any of our uh, governmental institutions again. Uh, but the thought that he's going to somehow go out and become the next Rush Limbaugh, I think is is not right. Um, you know, we, we've heard a lot of people talk about Trump's great energy and, and how he's indefatigable and he, you know, he's just always out there. Well, the fact is, he's not. He's actually a very lazy guy, um, lazy intellectually. I mean, Rush Limbaugh, for whatever you think of him, and I don't think much of his politics, as you might imagine, but he did a lot of work. Um, he got to know issues. Uh, he read a lot. Uh, he kept on top of things. And being on the air as somebody who once had a daily two-hour radio show, I can tell you is absolutely exhausting. And I just don't see Trump having the discipline 
uh, or the ability to entertain for that long. I mean, we, you know, yeah, he went before crowds and he sort of fed off of the energy of the crowd, whipping up a crowd. But if you ever actually sat and listened to one of his speeches, uh, they wandered. They weren't uh, coherent. And even the audience that adored and loved him would, you know, after he'd spoken for 50, 60, 70, 90 minutes, would often begin to drift away. So I don't see him becoming a huge force uh, in the way that any of the talk show hosts and, um, and others have been, because he just doesn't have the discipline to do the work that would be able to keep that kind of uh, audience uh, on a daily basis, which I think is really what you would need, you know, deprived of, of the office of the presidency and all its trappings uh, to be able to engender the kind of uh, adoration that he's had. Uh, I want to just uh, add to that uh, because I also think there's the element of, you know, he was so worshipped um, by his followers. He was so worshipped by by his followers, and they saw his elevation to the presidency as a kind of, um, you know, as a kind of revelation, and everything rested upon him being in power. And it's it's one thing to become Rush Limbaugh when you were a you know a sports guy and and you managed to to build up an audience and and become uh, influential uh, by being a radio guy. It's another thing to come down to that from having been the leader of the what we used to call the free world. Um, I I just cannot imagine that that would be of interest to him. Um, you know, frankly, anything that doesn't involve him, anything that doesn't involve the the glorification of Trump, like trying to get conservatives elected to public office, that's not going to interest him at all. So I don't see anything that would appeal to him about about a radio show or or even about forming a party if he isn't the center of it. You know, he's not going to form his so-called Patriot Party, which we're hearing about, unless he can be the nominee, I think. Pete, what do you what do you say? Yeah, I, um, a couple of things. Uh, I, there's impeachment, but there's a, another I word, which is indictment. And I actually think that there's uh, a fair chance that uh, that Donald Trump is indicted um, this year. We'll 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 see. Uh, I tend to agree with 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 Bill in terms of whether he gets convicted or not. I think McConnell is going to be a key key figure. I did uh, note that yesterday, uh, John Thune, who is the um, minority whip in the Senate and obviously close to McConnell, uh, signaled that he opposed impeachment. Um, and I'm, I assume that that's, that's not accidental. I would be surprised if, if they can get the necessary votes. Uh, I think certainly on the merits, he deserves to be indicted uh, and, um, and certainly deserve to be in, impeached. In terms of the larger impact on the Republican Party, uh, I, I really don't know. I think it's very much of an open question my intuition is at this point is that he uh, is a shriveling figure, uh, and his his influence is collapsing. It's fascinating if you follow what's going on in the QAnon world, where obviously Trump was viewed as a as a kind of cult leader. There was tremendous cognitive confusion. Uh, they really believed that Joe Biden would be arrested and that Trump would come back. And so you, you read what's going on there. They don't really quite know what to make of this. Was this real or not? What happened to, to our savior? Um, and I don't think Trump has the, the skills or the inclination 
or the ability to to form a third uh, a third third party. Uh, and he's off of Twitter, which I wouldn't underestimate either. That was his main means of communication. Now he's going to try and make up for that, but I don't think it'll have the same power. And we see a lot of Republicans now that are going to want to turn this into a kind of, you know, put, put Trump in the memory hole, Donald, Donald who I think Trump can create problems for the Republican party. I think the odds are much higher that he could split the GOP than ever lead it, um, again. Um, but you know, if, if, if the needle were leaning in one direction versus another in terms of his influence, I would say it's going to be less rather than than more. And I want to say one more thing about the Republican Party at this moment, um, Mona, um, which is uh, you know Shakespeare said the whirly gig of time brings in its revenges, and we are seeing that now. This is a party that day after day after day, transgression after transgression after transgression, stood with him. Most of them knew what he was. If they didn't, they should have. And they only broke with him after he lost an election, after Georgia was lost, and after the Capitol was under assault. And even then, a lot still stayed with him. And they created this monster. And the fact that their party may be in part devoured by it, um, there's a kind of rough justice in that. Now, I'm of the view that the, it's important that the Republican Party be a strong and sane and responsible party. So I want it to repair. Um, I think it's important for the Republican Party. I think it's important for the country. But people shouldn't leave this moment too quickly. Um, a lot happened that was uh, that was very, very bad for the country and the party. And, and I, uh, I think it's important that there be some degree of reflection on how we got to this awful moment. You can say that again. Um, in support of Damon's thought, though, let me just um, mention that Lindsey Graham, the aforementioned, um, had this to say. Uh, by the way, he flipped back, right? So he said he was abandoning Trump on the day of the insurrection. He said, I'm done, tried to be helpful, but this is too far for me. I'm out. Of course, then he was assaulted at the airport by these screaming people, by the way, who got um, kicked off their uh, kicked off Delta for life. Uh, so there was a little bit of justice there. But in any event, um, he then crawled right back into the Trump tent. And he said the other day that uh, Donald Trump will be the strongest voice in the Republican Party for years to come. Uh, so there we are. Um, I, I guess there's you know, and any number of uh, straws in the wind tell us that the Republican Party has not learned anything. Um, there's the fact that Liz Cheney, who gave a wonderful um, statement uh, during the uh, impeachment, um, there's an effort, uh, the petition is being circulated to deny her her leadership position. The Arizona GOP is attempting to punish Governor Ducey for not stealing the election. Uh, the Michigan GOP is trying to remove Aaron von Langeveld, who was one of the heroes on the board of state canvassers because he refused to steal the election and um, on and on. But um, there is there is this, though. In California, the Senate Republicans in, uh, in the California legislature um, have decided to remove their leader, who was Trumpy, and replace her with a non-Trumpy leader. So that's great. Um, the only thing is that in California, um, there are 
30 Democrats in the Senate and only nine Republicans. So uh, I guess you take what you can get. Um, all right, let us uh, let us move on. Unless anybody has a quick thought about this one other subject that I meant to cover before, but we, we uh, didn't get to it. And that is, um, I was quite surprised that Trump did not issue a self-pardon. Does anybody want to say a word or two about that? If not, we will go on to uh, Biden and his his first steps. Um, so he um, he has some important decisions to make about what to prioritize. Um, and uh, on his first day, he issued a number of executive orders, um, mainly reversing executive orders of his predecessor, like rejoining the World Health Organization the Paris Climate Accord, um, temporarily banning oil and gas leasing in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and so on. But, um, but um, Bill, I'd like to go to you first on this because you wrote a column about um, what Biden needs to focus on right from the beginning, and uh, I thought it was uh, very trenchant. So if you could, if you could expand on that, I'd appreciate it. Well, my, my argument in brief in the column is that Biden, Biden will be judged uh, on the basis of his management of the pandemic. This is a problem that touches every American. Uh, it is a major obstacle to the reopening of the, of the economy and, the, and return to normal social life. And it creates a miasma of fear that has a chilling effect on all sorts of activities. He only has one chance to get it right. Uh, and my argument, uh, he said something a few days ago when asked, well, what was he going to do about the pandemic? He said, we're going to manage the hell out of it. That was exactly right. Now he has to do it. Uh, it is clear that he inherited a mess from the Trump administration, uh, that despite many claims to the contrary, there was no effective plan in place uh, once the states received their doses, uh, and that the states have been left very much on their own, many of them, including some places that I expected uh, more from, including my own state of Maryland, have not distinguished themselves, and uh, so we we have a we have a big problem. There will be, if the Biden administration is not careful, a very large gap between expectations and performance. Uh, Biden has said many times uh, that his administration would administer a hundred million doses in the first hundred days. Uh, I don't care what got him to that statement, but now he has to make it happen. Really, the credibility of his administration depends on the management of, of the pandemic, and nothing is in close second. And I am hoping, perhaps against hope, that he communicates that kind of focus to the American people and doesn't get bogged down in a bunch of other issues that are worthy 
but not nearly as important either real either in reality or in strictly political terms. So that was my argument. I can go through a bunch of details about what I think he needs to do in order to get it right. Uh, one that I'm very fond of, frankly, is the idea of a public dashboard updated daily so that people in any state can, with one click of a mouse, find out how their state is doing relative to other states. And if their state is doing poorly, uh, they can make a fuss. Uh, how many doses were delivered to the state? How many of the doses delivered to the state have actually made their way into pe people's arms? How are different regions and counties doing? I think here information could be a very powerful lever for improved performance at every level. And by the way, uh, speaking of truth, if the federal government falls down on the job, uh, I would expect the Biden administration to admit that and fix the problem before it becomes a problem for the country and for Joe Biden's uh, presidency. Damon, I'm sympathetic to the argument that that this should be, you know, the first, second, third, fourth priority for the Biden administration. But then I also tend to have a very um, constrained view of what I want and hope for from government and what I think government can can achieve. So those things mesh nicely for me. But frankly, when you look at how the public reacts to a presidency, um, if things are going okay in the economy and there is no, you know, losing war. Uh, being fought, um, people are pretty satisfied and tend to reelect incumbents. I mean, presidents come in thinking they have to do a million things, and they actually just have to get a few basics right, and they'll probably be perceived as successful. What do you think? Well, sure. I mean, Biden is coming in, I think, really with there are several crises going on, but the two main ones, the first is obviously, yes, the virus. I agree with everything Bill said. I would only add to what uh, he indicated, which I, I, I bet he talks about this perhaps in that column, which I have not read. Uh, but the other component of it is a kind of um, uh, public persuasion outreach uh, effort to try to build trust in the safety of the vaccine. Because it, it's it, there are plenty of people who are dying to get the vaccine and can't get it yet, but there are also tens of millions of Americans who really don't want to try it because they don't believe that it will either uh, protect them or they believe the side effects are going to be terrible. It's going to make them sick. The kind of anti-vaxxer tendency, this tends to be higher uh, among Republicans and especially the Trumpiest Republicans. I think that a lot of the problems we talked about in the first half of the podcast today about Trump and the country and trust and unity and, and uh, the epistemic crisis in the country can be partly addressed by a really effective effort at trying to persuade people that that this is safe, that it will help, that it will make the virus go away, that it will therefore also help the economy and allow things to open up again and improve our quality of life all across the board. So that's very important. And then the second major thing is the economy, which is still hurting and is sagging in certain sectors because the virus lingers and we're staying home. Certainly, 
anything connected to travel and leisure, uh, restaurants, uh, airlines, hotels, and service industries in those sectors are are still hurting terribly. And this is this needs to be addressed. And and Biden has some some great, incredibly ambitious, very expensive plans ready to go if he can get them passed through Congress. So in my view, those are the two things. Obviously, there are a lot of people in an administration. It's big. Lots of things can be pushed on different fronts, but none of them come anywhere close to as being as important as these two things, getting the virus down so that over the summer, it effectively is on the way out so that Schools next fall can open totally normally. Uh, people know that they can go to school. And then the economic side of it, that people know they're not going to lose their businesses. They're not going to lose their jobs. They're not going to be unable to pay the rent, that the landlords are going to be able to pay their mortgages on the properties where they're not receiving rent checks from their tenants. I mean, the whole thing strikes me as still extremely precarious and could really spin out of control in a very bad way if we don't get on top of it. I think Biden knows this and plans to act fast on it. And um, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt uh, on here. We're recording the second day of his administration that these two things will, in fact, be the major priorities going forward. Bill, quick response. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that vaccine resistance. Vaccine resistors are, I think, empirical proof uh, that the human race is not exempt from the principle of natural selection. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> Linda, um, one of the things that I keep reading on right-leaning websites is that Joe Biden is under such terrible pressure from the left wing of his party, crushing pressure from the left wing of his party. And yet I haven't seen it. Have you? No, I, I really haven't. I mean, you know, sometimes those right-wing uh, groups are focusing on issues like immigration. And obviously immigration was something he did right away. It was one of his uh, uh, first orders. Uh, let me say something about those first 17 executive orders. When Jen Psaki did her first briefing in the White House briefing room, one of the things that she let the... Uh, uh, people in the room know was that every one of them had been reviewed, as she put it, by OLC, which is the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. When Donald Trump came in and started issuing executive orders, I don't think anybody on his team knew that there was such uh, a group of people as OLC uh, or that they had anything to do with overseeing the legality of some of the of the orders that would be put out. And as a result, um, many of Trump's first orders had to uh, be rewritten, uh, courts threw them out, etc. So that gave me great confidence in something that I'm like a broken record on on this podcast, which is competence, that competence really does matter. So they were competent. But I do think that um, while I absolutely agree with Bill, with Damon, and with others who say that getting uh, control of the pandemic is job one, two, three, four, et cetera. Uh, until you do that, the economy can't come back. Nothing else can, 
can matter. I do think that there is a window of opportunity to do something that the uh, Congress has not been willing to even tackle since basically 2013, uh, and that is immigration reform. Uh, I think immigration reform is ultimately quite uh, important to economic recovery. Uh, I think people who really understand how the economy works understand that immigration is integral uh, to an expanding economy and to a successful economy. So I'm very pleased that he is focusing on that. I'm also pleased that as much as I you know, love the fact that young people who've been brought to the United States by their parents uh, were protected by the uh, memorandums put out by the uh, Department of Homeland Security in creating the DACA program, the Deferred Action Program for Childhood Arrivals. Um, I always believe that you couldn't really protect those children. You certainly couldn't give them uh, a real foothold in the American a dream without giving them legal protection through legislation. So I was very uh, pleased that uh, the Biden team seems to understand that, uh, seems to understand that there is a role for Congress to play and is going to play an active role in that. But I, I would put immigration uh, reform as one of the things that at least must begin in the first year of the Biden administration uh, if it is to have any chance whatsoever of success. So, Pete, I'd be interested in your views on this because, frankly, I have to confess, I'm a little wary of the Biden administration wading into immigration immediately. Um, I, maybe that's cowardly of me, but I really feel that in light of the precariousness of our national situation, <clears throat> we need him to get some wins on the board. We need him to get the virus under control and focus all of his energy on things where we can um, where we can agree. And immigration is so contentious, though I do agree with Linda about the need for it. I just am afraid it shouldn't be the first priority. What what what's your view? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, like you, I agree with Linda on the on the merits of immigration reform. I was in an administration that pushed for comprehensive immigration reform in the mid two thousands. Uh, I would not sequence it this way. We made a mistake in the Bush administration, the second term of uh, beginning with an initiative um, on reform of Social Security, um, and and that went that went nowhere. And I agree with what others have said. Look, I, you know, Claire Booth Luce once told uh, John Kennedy that that everybody, every president, gets a single sentence in the history books. And right now, uh, given the facts and circumstances that we have, you would guess that the pandemic is going to be a part of that first sentence for Joe Biden. He's got to get that right. It seems to me that there um, are uh, three elements that, that are crucial. One is this um, interregnum, this, this interim period until we get enough vaccines. And so that is really making the case for, for, for masks and social distancing. The second uh, is are the are the uh, vaccines themselves, and there there's an important story, which is uh, Johnson and Johnson is in the final stages of the data analysis of the phase three uh, vaccine uh, trials, and I talked to a leading scientist involved in this effort uh, last week, and the hope is that by uh, end of this month, early February, they're going to be up and and if that happens with J and J and that particular kind of vaccine that. Uh, that will help an enormous amount. Um, and then the third thing is what Damon referred to uh, mentioned, which is that uh, it's the taking of the vaccine. There was a poll that came out 
that 80 percent of Biden voters um, are uh, in, open to and in favor of and would be willing to take the vaccines and 39% of Trump voters are, which goes to show just how much our, our culture and everything has been uh, infected by political tribalism. Um, that's a big issue. The hope is that as these vaccines are given and and there are not bad effects to them and that they begin to work, that people will will, will go along. But uh, yeah, I think I think the vaccine is is primus inter paris. And I think Biden knows it and his and his his team knows that it doesn't mean that governing in other areas can't go forward. I do think on immigration, and I would defer to, to, to Bill and Linda on this, that maybe what you do is you do it in incremental reform. I think the idea of comprehensive immigration reform is, um, uh, is problematic, but Bill knows this better than I because I've learned it from him. If you go down the particulars of immigration reform, there's actually a fair amount of bipartisan consensus on it. So I think if you can, if, if you can show people that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, what Biden would be advancing on immigration reform, but the Republicans and Democrats, things they agree with, um, you know, there's, there's some chance of success, but, but I do think incremental as opposed to comprehensive is probably the way to go. Bill, did you want to make another comment on that? I know for a fact that very senior Republicans in the Senate support a clean DACA bill. That'll be a great place to start to get some momentum up. And I suspect I suspect that there's some other pieces of the comprehensive bill that could be moved forward pretty cleanly and pretty quickly. But I can uh, I can use just a piece of history to explain why I'm in favor of and why I'm opposed to lead, leading off with comprehensive immigration reform. Remember cap and trade in 2010? It consumed the Senate for most of 2010, the Obama administration ended up empty-handed. It paid an enormous opportunity cost for putting something on the table as a top priority and consuming the Senate's time uh, for nearly a full year and, and ending up empty-handed. It's that opportunity cost that concerns me most. Yeah. And there's also a, a momentum argument as well, because success breeds success and failure gives the new administration, if there's an initial failure of any kind, it sort of taints the administration, makes them look weak and, uh, and, and diminishes their influence thereafter. Uh, that happened very uh, notably to Jimmy Carter. Of course, most of our listeners are too young to remember Jimmy Carter. I'm almost too young to remember Jimmy Carter, but I did a lot of reading. All right. Um, let us uh, move now to our final thoughts, Our uh, something that we would like to highlight. Linda, let's start with you. Okay. And I, could I just, want, just add what, very quickly? I was not suggesting in my remarks that we have to have a comprehensive reform bill. And in fact, I don't think uh, that is the way that the, the uh, Biden team is going to go. Uh, so I you know, if so you're I, for the piecemeal approach. Yeah, I think the piecemeal okay. approach works, but I want DACA up there and also probably trying to figure out how you're going to deal with 11 million people who are here. And and basically, you know, you can't uh, uh, necessarily, you know, figure out how you're going to uh, how you're going to be able to, uh, to deal with, uh, with them. And I think that's, that's important. And that leads me to, uh, the question of, uh, what to do, uh, about some of the people who got, st uh, stunned, uh, by, uh, the cruelty of the, 
uh, Trump administration. Uh, there was an article in the Washington Post this week about a, uh, a young man, a 40-year-old man named Paul Pierre Elis. I think that's the way you mention, uh, that's the way you pronounce his name. He was born on an island that is still controlled by France uh, to parents who were themselves Haitian. Uh, and apparently, literally, you know, midnight, uh, the night before Trump but, uh, went off into the sunset, he was ready to be loaded uh, onto a plane and be sent back to Haiti, uh, a country he had never stepped foot in and a country that rejected him uh, because Haiti does not have birthright citizenship, nor does France. And so he was basically stateless. And uh, this uh, young man uh, was saved by the bell. He was saved by a new congressman from New York who was willing to step in and basically stop his removal. And I think the the pause that's been put now on removing people uh, as the Trump uh, people were doing in the last minutes, I mean, they seem to be on a frenzy of executing people on death row and putting people in airplanes and sending them off to countries, some of which uh, none of them had ever stepped foot in before. So I just point that out and say that's one of the the good things that's happened uh, since noon yesterday. Wow. Amazing story. Damon. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, I ha- I feel a little bad about this because I'm going to name someone who I named only two weeks ago, and I don't want people <laughs> to think I only read three people. However, uh, she's very good and so good, in fact, that I hear a rumor she may be joining us on this podcast at some point soon. <laughs> uh, yes. This is uh, Ann Applebaum had a piece in The Atlantic this week titled Coexistence. I had a feeling you were going to recommend option. this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I really loved this piece, Coexistence is the only option, uh, subtitled Millions of Americans Sympathize with the Capital Insurrection. Everyone else must figure out how to live alongside them. And talk about a hard truth. Um, I've made this case in columns a lot over the years. I haven't that much in the last year because I haven't been able to summon the fortitude to say it because I've been so angry so much of the time at the behavior of a lot of our fellow citizens and rallying around our uh, former president. Uh, But the reality is, unless we're going to descend into a civil war, we have to learn how to live with each other. And Anne's piece is, is a very thoughtful look at this and very practical. She actually has some practical suggestions. They're not overly ambitious or idealistic. They're they're very uh, practical policy suggestions, things that can be done to set up programs to involve people not doing political projects where they would clash, but simply doing that magic of uh, interaction in civil society that can wear away differences and smooth uh, sharp edges. So I very much recommend that piece. It's, it's really excellent, a, a nice contribution. It was in the Atlantic and true story. I read it and said to myself, this is something I should really recommend at the end of Beg to Differ. And then I thought, no, I bet Damon's going to recommend it. <laughs> Great minds thinking. <laughs> okay, Pete. Yeah. I, um, you know, during the campaign, um, Donald Trump said that if uh, Joe Biden is elected president, uh, that there will be no God and that Joe Biden would be against God. 
Um, it seemed to me that God made a comeback uh, during the Biden administration. The inauguration was drenched in God. Um, he quoted St. Augustine, uh, who he said was a saint of his church, and talked about the order of the loves, the object of, of, of the loves. Uh, Biden quoted uh, from, from the Hebrew scripture about what weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. He asked for a mo moment of silent prayer. Um, and you had uh, Amanda Gorman quote from the book of Micah. You had a minister um, speak out. Um, you know, God's existence doesn't depend on whether a president uh, believes in him or talks about him or not. But uh, Joe Biden is a person um, of deep faith, um, and it's been central to his life. It's been central uh, to in, in, in his journey from, from the grief and the losses that he's experienced. Um, and uh, he talks about it in a way that I think um, is, uh, has the capacity to bring us together. It, it really is, I think, in the best tradition of, uh, of American politics and American uh, presidents. And I think you can just uh, put this as one more thing that, uh, that Donald Trump said that simply wasn't true. And one day into the uh, Biden administration, we know it's not true. Yes. <clears throat> I wonder how many times um, Trump has actually even seen the inside of a church <laughs> compared with uh, compared with Joe Biden, who's a, a regular uh, communicant, as I understand it. All right. Bill Galston. Well, before I get to my point, apropos of, of Pete's remark, you know, as you probably know, Pete, uh, Biden's inauguration has created a ferocious argument within the Catholic Church. Uh, Biden is a Pope Francis Catholic, and many American Catholics are not. This is going to be interesting. Uh, but I, ag I agree with you on what you said about Biden's faith and the influence it's had on his politics. Uh, now to my point. There has been a long-running debate as to the extent of Donald Trump's real hardcore support. You can call them Fifth Avenue Trumpists. Uh, and uh, the, in the days before the presidential election, uh, Trump's approval rating stood at 46%, uh, according to Gallup. Uh, new numbers came out earlier this week. Uh, that 46 is now down to 34%. In other words, in... In the past two months, Donald Trump has lost one quarter of his previous support. And that erosion did not come from Democrats because he had no support among Democrats. And there hasn't been a huge erosion among independents either, although it's been significant, but independents always were at a lower base. A substantial part of that erosion has come from Republicans. Uh, and Will he simply slink, slink away and fade into insignificance? If that 34 goes down to 24, he will be living in the land of insignificance for a very long time. So the next few months will really be critical in determining how much of a continuing force in the country and within the Republican Party Donald Trump is likely to be. All right. I would like to um, highlight the role of um, Dominion Voting Systems. They are the company that uh, manufactures voting machines and that has um, filed a series of lawsuits and also sent warning letters to um, some 20 people 
uh, defamation suits possibly to come. One of them was a $1.3 billion suit against Sidney Powell, the erstwhile lawyer for the Trump uh, team. Uh, she's no longer a lawyer with the Trump team, but she's in the orbit. Uh, who has been who has been circulating um, these crazy suggestions that the that the machines were created by Hugo Chavez in Venezuela to rig elections that they changed Trump votes to Biden votes through a special algorithm and on and on and on, all of which are groundless. Now, some of the people involved, like the American Thinker uh, web web blog or whatever it is, um, have issued really um, groveling apologies, <laughs> groveling, just saying this was completely wrong. It had no basis. In fact, we humbly apologize for having published this uh, garbage. Um, and uh, even Fox News has issued some on-air apologies. Um, and uh, we will see. The Dominion may yet sue Donald Trump himself for defamation, Um which uh, would be would be interesting. Um, but my point is a little bit larger, which is that when you are a private company that has been defamed and harmed, this business, after all, is getting states and localities to buy its voting machines, and that has obviously been damaged, um, you can get relief from the courts. But the lies that the entire Republican Party told about a stolen election, that leading members of Congress, including Kevin McCarthy until very late in the game, um, contributed to, that uh, 17 state attorneys general contributed to by joining on to this spurious lawsuit immediately thrown out by the Supreme Court um, about uh, the votes in four key swing states that 139 House members and eight senators supported by voting to decertify the Electoral College. They have done unbelievable damage to our civic culture and to our, to our democracy, to our national health. And until and unless some significant portion of them, and I also include, you know, the the Fox Newses and the and Rush Limbaugh's and all of those people, Sean Hannity, the whole crew, unless they apologize and acknowledge that they misled people in this terrible, destructive way, this lie will live on and it will continue to be like termites in the foundation of this country. Because when people think their democracy has been stolen, the violence becomes thinkable, as we saw. And uh, reversing this lie is uh, is a huge task. And I, I don't say that I expect to hear apologies, but I think demands that we see apologies are, are uh, necessary. That is it for us this week. Thank you all for listening. Please rate and review us, leave us feedback, and we will be back next week as every week. 